I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 55th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that it is difficult for love and competition to coexist, and one of the most destructive things to a marriage that a married couple can do is to compete with one another. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On August 2nd, our lesson this morning is the 55th part of our sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ. The text is in Luke 22, chapter, uh, chapter 22, verses 24 through 27, and John 13, 34, and 35. And the Bible says this. An argument arose among them about who was considered the greatest. So Jesus said to them, the kings of the nations lorded over their subjects, and those in authority are called benefactors, but it isn't to be that way among you. The greatest among you must become like the youngest, and your leader must become a servant. For who is greater? I am the one who reclines at the table to eat, or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? Yet I am among you, as one who serves. I am giving you a new commandment that you must love one another. Love one another just as I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God our Father we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Now. Thank you very much for coming to hear this lesson today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in the 1979 movie, The Sting, the plot was that a ruthless mobster played by Robert Shaw controlled a numbers operation in Chicago, and he ordered the killing of a con man that conned one of his numbers runners out of a few thousand dollars which was, as Paul Newman's character, the hero of the story, said, a chunk of money that wouldn't support him for two days. The murdered con man's partner in crime, played by Robert Redford, enlisted the help of Paul Newman's characters, one of the most experienced con men in the country, to get even with Shaw. Newman outcheated Shaw in a poker game to get Shaw angry at him, and then Newman and Redford set up a phony bookie joint to bet on horse races, and Redford persuaded Shaw to put up the money to break Newman by convincing Shaw that he could find out race results before they were reported to the bookies, 
and Shaw could bet on a completed race already knowing which horse won. The plan was to bet a large amount of money at long odds and break Newman's bank. And the climax came when Shaw bet a half a million dollars on a race. And after Shaw gave the money to the teller to place the bet, the FBI busted in to arrest Newman. And as the FBI was gathering up the suspects, suspects, the FBI lieutenant announced that Redford was free to go because Redford was the one that turned Newman in. So Newman pulled his gun and shot Redford, and then the FBI lieutenant shot Newman. Both Redford and Newman were pronounced dead. And since Shaw was not part of the con for which the FBI was arresting everyone, the FBI lieutenant gave Shaw the chance to leave the scene to avoid going to jail with the rest of the con men, and Shaw did so, leaving his half million dollars behind. But the FBI lieutenant was part of the con. All of the bullets were blanks, and Newman and Redford used fake blood to appear dead because their deaths were part of the con as well. The con convinced Shaw that he couldn't get his money back because he thought the FBI had it. And Shaw thought Newman and Redford were dead, so he couldn't do anything to them to get his money back either. Now, Shaw was fooled because he believed Newman's reaction was genuine. Any mobster would certainly kill the person that betrayed him to the FBI, which is the reason that the witness protection exists in real life. Being betrayed stimulates powerful negative emotions, which is why the betrayal of adultery is the only activity cited by God as a reason to void our marital vow. Now, as we left our last lesson, Judas was planning to betray Jesus at the conclusion of the Passover dinner. Judas hadn't confided in anyone about his plan, so after Jesus finished teaching the disciples about foot washing, Judas was shocked by Jesus' next utterance in the combined lection of Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, and John 13, which says, after Jesus had said these things, and while they were still reclining at the table and eating, Jesus became deeply troubled and said, I'm telling you the truth. One of you will betray me, even someone who is eating with me. The disciples became extremely distressed and looked around at each other, wondering who Jesus meant. They began to ask each other which one of them might do this. One by one, they asked Jesus, Lord, Am I the one? Now, the other disciples were planning to perform bodyguard duty for Jesus. They thought that Jesus meant that one of them would fail to maintain their post, so they each asked Jesus if they would be the one to fail. And Jesus' answer chilled the house. As the lection continues, Jesus said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping his hand in the dish with me. Look, the hand of the one who is betraying me is with me on the table. The Son of Man will indeed go as it has been determined and predicted in the scriptures, but how awful it will be for the one who betrays him. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Now remember why Shaw believed that Newman shot Redford. Betrayal is about the worst thing that you can do and deserves the worst punishment. 
we will find Judas in the hottest, most miserable place in the pit of hell. And since Jesus did not name the disciple whom he was warning about the consequences of betrayal, Judas decided to ask Jesus if he was actually talking about him. The lection continues. Then Judas asked Jesus, Rabbi, am I the one? You have said it yourself, Jesus replied. And to the, to the Jewish mind, this answer was as direct as a yes. Since Jesus was warning Judas directly, Judas hesitated as he considered the condemnation that Jesus prophesied for him. Meanwhile, Peter was planning to stop the betrayer to protect Jesus. As the lection continues, one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. <clears throat> so Simon Peter motioned to John to find out from Jesus who he meant. John leaned closer to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one I give this piece of bread to after I have dipped it in the dish. After dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Judas took it, and immediately Satan entered into him. Now, even as Satan entered the garden to convince the man and woman to disobey God, Satan entered Judas to convince him to disregard Jesus' warning of Judas's eternal damnation. And before John could tell Peter about Judas and Peter could act to stop him, Jesus intervened. The lection records, then Jesus said to Judas, what you are doing, do quickly. When Satan entered Judas, Jesus sent Judas quickly on to his eternal damnation. It is best for us to listen when the Lord or the word warns us about sin. <clears throat> the lection continues. None of those at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Some thought that since Judas had charge of the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what they needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Immediately after Judas took the piece of bread, he left and it was night. So now Judas is gone. Jesus is left with the 11 disciples that are going to carry the gospel. Ten of the 11 will eventually forsake Jesus, but after the resurrection, they will become bold witnesses, so much so that they will give their lives to spread the gospels. The 11 disciples are sinners, as are we all, but the Lord Jesus Christ mercifully provides us with a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice with forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness. The lection continues. After Judas had gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and, God, and he will glorify him very soon. Little children, I am with you for only a little while longer. You will look for me, but just as I said to the Jews, you cannot come where I am going. So now I say it also to you. Jesus was making the solitary trip to the cross in order to glorify God and in so doing to glorify himself. 
God has a plan for each of our lives, and we glorify God when we follow his plan and achieve the outcome that he has in mind for us. This week, the Sporting News glorified Coach John Wooden, naming him the greatest athletic coach of all time because Wooden, during his tenure as head basketball coach at UCLA, was able to influence his players to follow his instructions and win, win the college basketball national championship more often than any other coach in history. God is our coach, but we are the players, and since we have the ball, we can deviate from God's plan and play our own game if we so choose, but glorifying God means that we yield our wills to his will voluntarily to achieve his objective, just as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, and others yielded their wills to that of John Wooden to win 10 national championships for UCLA. Jesus Christ yielded his will to glorify God as he completed God's plan to show his love for us by pardoning us for our sins, as John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now in the original Passover, which was our subject last week, God used the blood of lambs to select the Israelites to be the people to whom he showed his love. But John 3.16 tells us that God is augmenting his selection. As well as the Israelites, now anyone can choose to receive God's love by accepting Jesus Christ. The choice to accept God's favor or not is now ours. The Passover is obsolete. The blood of animals is no longer necessary. And so Jesus instituted a new ceremony, as Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22 records. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take and eat, he told them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after cup of Jesus took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, and they all drank from it. Jesus told them, This cup which is poured out for you is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out on behalf of many people for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it fresh with you in the kingdom of of my father. So the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. The wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ and our voluntary eating and drinking of them represents our internalization of the thinking and teaching of Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ as John 3:16 references is more than accepting the historical truth of that which Jesus Christ has done. It means that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually internalize the plan of Jesus Christ 
for our lives into our thinking. In other words, when we believe, we obtain the mind of Christ, and the Bible is illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. Believing in Jesus Christ means that we are making a commitment to be obedient to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is the Bible, in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And in order to actually commune with Jesus and to internalize his ideals, we have to change our perspective so that the devil cannot enter us as he did Judas. And we have to resist the temptation to take the shortcuts that the devil proposes that we use to reach the will of God because the devil's shortcuts will not take us where we want to go, but will rather get us lost. Jesus gives us an example in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, which says, Then Jesus was led up, to the, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Holy Spirit sent Jesus on a fast and the devil tempted Jesus to break the fast. But Jesus indicated that obtaining the things that we want should be secondary to, to following the plan of God. The definition of sin is when we make the obtaining of the things that we want more important to us than following the plan of God. Now the entire passage that Jesus quoted is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 which says, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not nor your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And although Jesus desired food and could provide it for himself, Jesus chose to remain on the fast until the Holy Spirit released him. The satisfaction of our desires offered by the devil leads to a dead end as the desire for money did with Judas. And having the mind of Christ means that we must be willing to suffer to devote ourselves to the mindset of God rather than take a shortcut to personal satisfaction and be willing to suffer as was Jesus. Now the next lection is our text for today which shows us that Jesus required the disciples and probably us to change their thinking in order to follow him. Luke 22, 24 and 25 tells us, 
an argument arose among them, that is the disciples, about who was considered the greatest. So Jesus said to them, the kings of the nations lorded over their subjects and those in authority are called benefactors, but it isn't to be that way among you. Listen carefully to the change that Jesus wants us to make. In Luke chapter 22 and John chapter 13, he says, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and your leader must become a servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table to eat or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. I am giving you a new commandment. You must love one another. Love each other just as I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is about competition. The disciples missed the lesson when Jesus washed their feet. Foot washing was a duty generally delegated to a slave, and so the disciples argued, meaning that they competed, to decide which of them was the leader and should be exempt from washing feet and which of them was the least and should wash feet in the future. But Jesus is changing the paradigm with the purpose of fostering love, which is his commandment, rather than competition, which is the commandment of the devil. Now, when I began playing basketball, I could not get anyone to pick me up to play on their team in a game until I could run and dribble at the same time. Once I developed those skills, I began competing. Initially, I lost in competition, so I practiced to improve my skills because, as in my neighborhood, winners played while losers had to get off of the court to let the next team play. And almost every competition has similar rules as the function of competition is to produce winners and losers. Girls that compete in swimsuit competitions must have certain physical dimensions and those that most match the desired dimensions win the competition. The girls that lose will try to enhance their dimensions before the next competition, either by wearing padded clothes, having surgery, or positioning their body parts to make them appear to have the dimensions similar to that of the winners. And competition almost inevitably arises when people are in the same place doing the same thing. Competition is not gender specific, nor is it restricted to athletic or intellectual skills. People compete in everything from the way they look to that, uh, to the way they look to the way that they do everything that they do. And the disciples are competing with one another because they are all doing the same thing training to be preachers of the gospel, and they are all in the same place following Jesus. Jesus, however, tells them not to compete, but to love one another. But if competition is the function of people being in the same place doing the same thing, how can the disciples avoid competition? Well, it's obvious. Since the competition is inevitable, when people are doing the same thing in the same place, and the disciples are all doing the same thing, 
Jesus' plan must be that they will be doing it in different places, which is why Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in this lection, the admonition to love one another is placed directly after the admonition to avoid competition because it is difficult for love and competition to coexist. One of the most destructive things to a marriage is that a, mar that a married couple can do is to compete with one another. God does not tell a man and woman married to one another to become a team or to work together, but to become one. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now the disciples dispute about which of them is the greatest. And the disciple exhibited the a behavior that occurs when people work together or become a team. Arguments ensue because mem uh, between members of a team because teams have stars. The star is the person with the most desirable role. And if the team has a star, other members of the team will eventually want to be the star, which creates competition within the team. But when the two become one, Neither of them is the star. Just as when you use your two legs to walk, neither of them is the star, but they are interdependent upon one another to get the job done. Now, my mother was a beautician. When I was five years old, she sold her interest in the beauty shop that she owned so that she could be at home full time to take care of my two brothers and me. She had a few loyal customers whose hair she did in the basement and she took up catering parties for people because she was a great cook, but her predominant job was to be our mother. And it would never have dawned on me or anyone else to imply that she didn't work because she did not have an office and she didn't leave home to go downtown. Her work was to take care of me, my two brothers, and my dad, and her contribution to our well-being was just as great as that of my dad who worked two jobs so that she could be at home and take care of us. My son and I were discussing his future family plans a few days ago, and I told him the best thing that you could do to make your life better is to construct a family in which your wife's major responsibility is to take care of you and your children as opposed to working outside of your home. When both you and your wife are in the workforce, you are two people living in the same place, doing the same thing. And that inevitably creates competition. And the last thing that you want when you come home from work after having competed all day is more competition. Think about it this way, I said. When you get married, each day you have three things to do. First of all, you will have to work to support your family. Secondly, you will have to meet the emotional needs of your wife. Thirdly, 
you will have to meet the emotional needs of your children. Now, your wife will also have three things to do. She will have to take care of your home. She will have to take care of your emotional needs. And in addition, she will have to take care of the unique emotional needs of your children. And remember that when your children are growing up, their emotional needs cannot be scheduled. So she needs to be available to meet their needs when they have them, not when she has time. So each of you have three things to do every day, and your limiting factor is time. By limiting factor, I mean that time is the thing that you only have so much of, and you can't get more of it. Of course, you have to prioritize your activities. But understand what that means. We prioritize because we don't have enough resources, meaning time, to get everything done. Now suppose I go to Walmart to buy milk and eggs. Which one do I have to get first? It doesn't make any difference because Walmart has both of them and Walmart is open for 24 hours so I can get each of them any time. Suppose, however, that your mother wants a certain supplement along with the milk and eggs, and they only sell it at the health food store, which is closing for the day in an hour. I will need to prioritize to get the supplement first because the health food store is closing and Walmart is not, and my limiting factor is time. Now, you want your wife to take care of her three responsibilities, your house, your children, and you, and her limiting factor is time. Now, add a job outside of the home to her schedule. What will this job require? Time. And since she can't get more time, she will have to prioritize to try to get everything done. Since she has four things to get done, the house, the children, you, and now the job, Guess which one won't get done if she doesn't have enough time. She has to go to work to take care of the job. She has to take care of the children because they're immature and can't take care of themselves. She's not going to want to live in a messy house. And that only leaves one thing to cut back on, and that is you. And when you get prioritized down, you will become dissatisfied. And what will happen when you try to discuss your dissatisfaction with your wife? The discussion will become competitive because competition inevitably arises when people are in the same place doing the same thing and you are two people living in the same place doing the same thing. Why is your job more important than hers? Why can't you do her job and do more around the house since she's doing your job working? Which of you is the star? And it's interesting that when wives compete with their husbands and when wives don't have time for their husbands, other women magically come along that don't want to compete and do have time. Married men have affairs for one reason. There are so many women that want to have affairs with them. The other women may not be as good as the wife, but a man that needs female affection may not care a hungry man will eat out of a garbage can rather than starve to death. And did you know that when you look at the number, the skyrocketing divorce rate in our country coincided with the influx of women in the workforce in the 1980s? Why? The limiting factor is always going to be time. 
so son, pick a wife in the same way that you would pick someone to be the vice president of your company. You don't want someone to compete with you. You don't want someone that wants your job, but rather you want someone that wants the job for which you are hiring. You want someone to be your wife and the mother of your children, to take care of your house, your children, and you, and to be available to meet the emotional needs, your emotional needs, and those of your children when you have them. If you fall in love with a woman that wants to be the president of the United States, vote for her, but don't marry her. If you do, you'll have a president, not a wife, and you'll have someone to take care of the United States of America, but not you and your children and your house. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that women shouldn't have careers if they want them. I just want you to understand that if you marry a career woman after the wedding, there's an excellent chance that you will still need a wife. Genesis 2.24 tells us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they can't, shall become one flesh. And one of the most destructive things to a marriage that a married couple can do is to compete with one another. God does not tell the man and woman to become a team or to work together, but rather to become one with one another. And Jesus tells the disciples in Luke 22 and John 13, the kings of the nations lorded over their subjects and those in authority are called benefactors, but it isn't to be that way among you. The greatest among you must become like the youngest and your leader must become a servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table to eat or the one who serves? Yet is it, yet is it not the one at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. I am giving you a new commandment that you must love each other. Love each other just as I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And wives should always submit to their husbands. This is because men register their wives' submission and love and a lack of submission as a lack of love. If my wife ever argued with me, not that she ever does because she's perfect, I would not register it as love but as being competitive. Submission is how women tell men that they love them. You may think that there are other ways, but using other ways to tell men that you love them is like me saying to you, I love you in Lithuanian. I may be saying I love you, but you will never know it unless I say it in a language that you understand. Now, men speak straightforwardly to make it easier for women to submit to their request. But I have found that generally, when I ask my wife a direct question, she does not give me a direct answer. The other day she was working on a project and I asked her if she needed my help. Rather than answer my question straightforwardly with a yes or no, she told me the details of what she was doing. So I asked her again and she gave me some more verbias about it. Now, there is a reason for that. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, 
love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are not instructed to submit to their wives, but to love them. My wife did not tell me what she wanted because wives don't register men's actions as love when men follow their instructions. Wives register men's actions as love when men take the time and the concentration to interpret obscure hints to figure out what their wives want. My wife feels that if I take the time to figure out what she wants from the hits she drops and act accordingly, then I love her. And that is also why wives occasionally change their desires without warning. They are checking to see if their husbands are still paying attention. And since the man is the leader, our text says that he must serve his wife by figuring out that which she wants and giving it to her. And brothers, it does no good to complain that you can't understand what your wife is saying. She wants you to take the time to read the clues that she is giving you and figure it out. And God purposely did not give men and women the same brain with different genitals, as the unisex crowd would have us think, but God made us to think differently. Two people doing the same thing in the same place will inevitably compete. And God does not want us to compete with one another. So God gives us different abilities and different roles so that we can become one and love one another. And we love Jesus because he has different abilities than we. And he plays a different role on God's program than we do. In the great marriage of heaven, Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church and the savior on the of the body. And Jesus died on the cross, giving himself for us. We didn't ask Jesus to save us by his sacrifice, but he spent the time to figure out what we needed to be saved. And like a good husband, Jesus, Jesus gave us his bride, the church, that which he knew that we needed. In the revelation of the end time that he received from God, John, the beloved disciple, tells us in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 14, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus Christ, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders answering said to me, Well, who are these away, arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb and his blood shed on the cross of Calvary is that which makes us as his church, his bride eligible to sit before him. And Jesus gives his bride an instruction to which he wishes her to submit in John 13, 34 and 35, I am giving you a new commandment, 
you must love one another. Love each other just as I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. And John, the beloved disciple, tells us in 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So let us not compete with one another, but let us love one another as he has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for the lesson, Lord, and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to love one another. Help us to have an understanding and to understand how one another, each of us think and how we can best serve one another. Help us as we go down from this place to resolve to make our mate's day the best day that we can possibly make it. Help us, Lord, to resolve to do for our mate that which we know that they need to have done to deal with them in the way that will satisfy them the best. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the heart and the mind to love one another. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things as we go down from this place. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down and bring us back at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com.